Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special Citizens United at 10 Symposium episode of the show. In recognition of the 10th anniversary of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, we're interviewing scholars about the research on the decision and the issues that it raises. We're also taking a look forward for things to watch for over the next 10 years. We'll return next week with our regular episodes. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or let others know about the show too. Our next guest on the Citizens United at 10 podcast symposium is Ann Tucker, professor of law at Georgia State University. Ann, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. And you've written in the area of Citizens United in corporate law over the last few years, and I wondered if you could give our listeners an overview of what you've been working on uh, in this domain over the 10 years since we've seen Citizens United hand down, and maybe how that interacts with some of the, the current public debates that we're seeing, particularly as it might relate to the, the corporate law context. Certainly. Well, so I come at this debate, as you noted, from a corporate law perspective. And if I can just tell a very brief story about this, it was my first year of teaching, and I stayed up really late reading over the Citizens United opinion. And I was in the middle of teaching my first semester of corporations and was really struck by how so much of what I was reading in the opinion was opposite from my developing thinking around corporate law how I was teaching my students and or encouraging my students to think about corporate law. And I was struck by this chasm between how uh, myself as a corporate law scholar and others in the community think of corporations and what I was reading about corporations and the opinions so that kind of started me onto a journey that I hadn't necessarily set out intending to take. And in preparing for our conversation today, it gave me a great opportunity to go back and revisit some of the earliest works that I did in my career and to see how that thinking, that initial journey has really taken me to where I am today. So I would say my main my main set of questions that I ask around Citizens United and related issues is thinking about the juxtaposition of corporate constitutional rights and individual rights, thinking about the relationship between the two, how to balance them, and how do we resolve them when they come up in conflict. Jumping off from that initial story about my reaction to the Citizens United opinion, my thinking around that was I I was able to produce an article in 2011 called Flawed Assumptions, a Corporate Law Analysis of Free Speech and Corporate Personhood in Citizens United. And that was in the Case Western Reserve Law Review in 2011. And that was my first article that I published as, as a law professor. And in that, I was able to identify what I saw as five main flaws of the court's reasoning specifically with regards to its conception of corporations. One, it's ignoring this idea that corporate speech always has an economic motivation and that that persistent presence of economic motivation makes it at least different in thought than other types of speech. Uh, The absence of a singular corporate voice saying when we assign speech to corporations, we must answer both who is speaking when a corporation speaks and how are they able to speak identifying questions around compelled speech for the economic interest holders or the shareholders in the corporation and pushing back on ideas of saying that that the law often regulates speech based on the corporate identity of the speaker. And we have examples of that that emanate in securities law and in other forms of corporate governance. And finally, the court in Citizens United had rejected the equalization rationale that had been a part of Austin, 
saying that campaign finance and the court wasn't interested in equalizing the voices of speakers. So they weren't concerned if some speakers, like corporations, had more money to bring to the debate than others. And my final observation here is that one of the main premise of securities law is one of equalizing voices. The idea of giving everybody access to the same important material information so that once informed, people can make the best decisions for themselves. And it struck me um, that the equalization rationale, while rejected in the political realm, was retained in the economic one. So those were my main reactions to Citizens United when the opinion first came out. And in thinking through those, I also identified, I think, probably two other issues that then continue on in my scholarship. So one of them is this, the observation that the court has had a confused conceptualization of the corporation. And maybe it's confused on purpose in that the court will choose to see the corporation as either an independent entity or as an association of individuals, depending on the question before it. And this ability to flip back and forth between the legal fiction, oh, the corporation is separate, it's held apart, it's completely separate from the individuals, and then a similar ability to then conceive of it as a mere association of citizens with a full set of speech and political rights. That fluidity between these different conceptions of the corporation has allowed for a development of corporate constitutional law that is at times inconsistent and leads to some unpredictable results when we play this out. So my observation about that fluidity and how the court conceives of, thinks of, and writes about corporations was a big part of my work early on. And then I'll say from that, that initial work, I started thinking about and using a phrase that I have continued to use in my writing today, and that's this idea of the citizen shareholder. And I thought of this as an idea primarily born of thinking about retirement investors. So here I mean people who invest in the markets through an employer-sponsored defined contribution plan, like your 401k or something similar, uh, depending on where you work. Most working Americans use this as a tool to save for retirement. And in fact, as the dominant way that we save for our individual retirement, maybe college savings for our children. At the time, Chancellor Strine described it as compulsory investment or forced investors. And thinking about these folks that have few alternatives but to be in the market and that they are a part of this corporate machine that participates in political realms. That really struck me, particularly when in Citizens United, the court talked about, well, unhappy shareholders can exit the corporation. Then we don't have to worry about compelled speech because if you're unhappy with the speech, you go someplace else. In later work, I articulated why uh, exit for retirement investors or citizen shareholders in particular is really sticky. It's hard for retirement investors to leave a mutual fund, let alone leave the underlying company that they ultimately hold the economic exposure to. So that paper about citizen shareholders and sort of the stickiness of their investment is a 2015 piece in the Yale Law Journal forum called Locked In, The Competitive Disadvantage of Citizen Shareholders. So if I have a portfolio in kind of a 
traditional paradigm of 20 different stocks and I have some bonds in there, then if I see one of the portfolio companies that I own engaging in political spending that I don't like, I guess in theory, I could decide to forgo that investment opportunity and vote with my feet. But if I own a S&P 500 ETF, uh, it's much harder to divest myself of the entire S&P 500. And if I have a 401k or a pension plan, it's even harder to get that kind of granular exit. Absolutely. No, you're, you're completely right. So it's, it's, it's several things. It's the monitoring costs to understand individual portfolio company actions. And then those costs are exacerbated by switching costs. So where can you go if you can't be in that S&P 500 ETF, as you noted? The other thing is if you're investing through a plan, the options are rather limited. So the ability to switch to a similar risk asset class within your plan is very restrictive. So that idea that we can vote with our feet, as the phrase goes, doesn't hold as true in both practice or theory for retirement investors or citizen shareholders. And when I think about this group, this is not an insignificant swath of the investing public. This is the largest growing group of investors. It's where most of new money into markets is coming from. And it's an increasingly important part of our individual financial stability, as well as our national policy on financial stability. It's how we save as a country for retirement. So I was struck by that. Another, for me, the work coming out of Citizens United has been a lens to examine a longstanding debate about what's the intersection between the role of private enterprise and the role of public or the role of government. And for me, this idea of the citizen shareholder, this person with dual economic interests in the market, as well as political, and here I don't mean political, like I want this candidate or this party to win, but here I mean like our ideals of politics and democracy, but these democratic interests are forced into this singular type of investment. And that juxtaposition of the interests and the rights, and then also this blending of public and private interests into single acts, all of that really captured my imagination in thinking through the Sins United case. I would say the jump from critiquing the case and that argument about exit, there were a couple important papers for me in between there that helped me to articulate the definition of citizen shareholders and to think a little bit more about what the consequences of Citizens United might be. So I wrote another paper that was called Rational Coercion, Citizens United and a Modern Day Prisoner's Dilemma that tried to go through an economic argument for what are the perverse incentives that if you don't know what the other side is going to do as a company, if you think that there are any risks in not engaging in political spending, that your rat, your, I'm making air quotes, but this is a podcast, so People can't see my air quotes, but I'm air quoting myself that the air quotes rational decision would be to support political spending. And so that paper, that was a a paper titled Rational Coercion that appeared in a Georgia State Law Review Symposium that I was able to host as a junior scholar with my constitutional law colleague, Eric Siegel, here at Georgia State. And we had a wonderful collection of election law, constitutional law, and corporate law scholars come and spend a day thinking through thinking through the impacts of Citizens United. We were able to do that a year after the opinion, which which was just an invigorating conversation. 
And then I'll say one, I'll, I'll say to one other article that tracks this development. And that's in the Seattle University piece identified that the arguments of the citizen shareholder in an article unsurprisingly titled The Citizen Shareholder, <laughs> Modernizing the Agency Paradigm. So that's been a fair amount of my formal work on Citizens United. Uh, I would also add that in jumping unexpectedly into constitutional law waters early in my career, something I was not planning coming from a world of transactions, I then stayed in the realm of thinking about corporate constitutional rights as there were further cases that extended the reach of Citizens United to Speech Now and McCutcheon. And then later was involved or have remained involved in issues of corporate constitutional rights by participating in an amicus brief on the Hobby Lobby case and also on the Masterpiece Cake cases that ask uh, what are the limits of corporate constitutional rights when they come in conflict with individual rights. So Citizens United has almost tracked your entire career thus far as a law professor. What have been some of the surprises that you've seen over the last 10 years as it relates to Citizens United and some of the implications or follow-ups from that case, or maybe some of the things that haven't surprised you as much? Right. That's a good question. And you're right. I have, um, I have rather professionally grown up under the, under the shadow of, of Citizens United. I think I'm going to put them in two categories. So one, maybe I'll talk about my professional response to that, and then I might speak a little bit more about my personal response to what's happened post-Citizens United. Professionally, I have been surprised, I think, at how the fluidity in thinking about corporate identity in Citizens United, how that fluid or morphable identity has continued, it has persisted, it hasn't been resolved, and in some ways it has expanded in subsequent corporate constitutional law cases, and there I'm thinking of like Hobby Lobby and Masterpiece Cake. Those cases surprised me that that there was not a better attempt to say to reconcile some inconsistencies and to articulate a corporate constitutional framework. That's simply beyond the court. That's the work of scholars. But I still sort of naively, I think, thought that that would be an important thing to resolving any of these subsequent questions that followed from Citizens United. I think from a personal perspective, I fully anticipated that this would change how elections are funded, who has dominant voices in elections, and that we would not only see those effects as reported numbers on bar charts or in sort of end of the election cycle summaries, but that we would experience them as part of the electorate. And I think that that is true. I thought maybe the changes post-Citizens United might be more dramatic or might be in some direction. By that, I mean corporations, maybe individual corporations being more involved. Very clear that that corporate actors are relatively risk averse and don't want to be in a political limelight. Um, but that doesn't mean that corporate money isn't going into elections. It's just not going in in um, more clearly identifiable ways. The rise of outside spending and the role that it has taken on in our elections, I think I was not able to conceive of when Citizens United first came down. But with the subsequent cases, that certainly became a reality. 
I think those are some of my my immediate reactions for surprises. I think maybe another one is that the one of the immediate responses was on corporate political spending disclosures, and that is 10 years later, an issue that's still not resolved. And the question of proxy access and to what extent can shareholders force corporations to take certain actions or consider certain issues and disclose certain practices, that is a debate that does not feel very much advanced from where it was maybe eight years ago in response to Citizens United. So that's 10 years looking back, 10 years looking forward. Are there things that you're going to be watching for uh, in this space? Are there any predictions or quasi-predictions you're willing to offer? Oh, I get to like armchair quarterback this and think about what's going what's gonna to happen. Uh, I pl- think please that, do. <laughs> <laughs> I think, so I don't know that there is a corporate constitutional law solution to this. I don't think that there's going to be an elegant theory that unifies corporate constitutional law and solves this problem. I think that ultimately some form of campaign finance reform would be the only real, and again, I'm using air quotes, remedy to uh, post-Citizens United world. Folks have batted around things like constitutional amendments. I think that poses a lot of very difficult questions because we want corporations to have constitutional rights and even aspects of free speech. But it's a much more tailored question, which is about what's the role of corporations in public elections? So in my mind, the remedy is one located in campaign reform, and that needs both a will and a way to make that happen. I don't see that in the foreseeable future, but I am an eternal optimist. So I hope that that is something that would be possible. Something that I have thought about, this is less a prediction. This is more of almost in the realm of strategy. So what I was really struck by in wading into the issues of Citizens United as a non-constitutional law scholar was the power of certain metaphors and the power of certain analogies. And the idea that speech is money is something that's taken root um, not only in our jurisprudence, but I think that that's a phrase we could ask like average people that aren't engaged in the law, what that means to them. And I think they might have something to say pretty close to what it is. But the other metaphor that I think is really powerful is a tricky one in this area is, is the marketplace of ideas. That all speech gives benefit to the listener and that the more speech we have, the more robust the markets are, the more efficient the markets are, that this is what we want to do. We don't want to favor or preference the markets. I think that metaphor has been incredibly powerful, the marketplace of ideas. Like, who doesn't want to get to choose from ideas? It sounds great. But I would say it's also a fallacy in that we don't have completely unregulated consumer markets or financial markets, nor do we want that. And in many ways, we look to government or we look to systems that have better information and better controls to put up guardrails to say we want the markets to be fair and we want the markets to be transparent and we want the markets to be efficient. And I think in many ways, just brute force competition has not been the means that our society has chosen to achieve those ends in economic realms and to think that that's a solution that will work elegantly and costlessly in the political realm 
strikes me as very naive. And so I I'm suffer from a lack of creativity. So I didn't have a counter metaphor that like does all this really difficult work with a single phrase, a marketplace of ideas. I don't have a counter metaphor for that. But it has a, a long been my thinking or intuition that to move in a post-citizens united world in a new direction, that, that the appeal of that underlying metaphor must be challenged with something that's equally compelling and something that captures the idea of what we want in our election, the way the phrase marketplace of ideas and other metaphors we use, and particularly in this area, have been so powerful. So I guess stay tuned to see if those trends continue over the next 10 years or so. Our guest on this episode has been Ann Tucker, professor of law at Georgia State University. Ann, Thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast and the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Citizens United at 10. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.